We have heard about what quasi-mercenary forces are, what they do, how they get their support, and who controls them. The big question is what, if anything, we can do about them. That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome back. I'm Chris Mayer. Today is August 25th, and while we are talking about events elsewhere, the collapse of Afghanistan is on our minds. These podcasts strive to be non-political, so we'll avoid discussing the why and the responsibilities for the collapse. It also serves no immediate purpose as our efforts need to focus on dealing with the crisis and the tragedies at hand. The collapse of any government anywhere leaves a vacuum in the rule of law, and mercenaries and quasi-mercenary organizations are drawn into that vacuum. Our purpose here today is to discuss ways governments, international organizations, NGOs, and even PMSCs can work together to manage the risks presented by QMOs in failed and fragile states. Joining me here today are Dr. Deborah Avant, Sia Chu Kang Chair for International Security and Diplomacy at the University of Denver. Among other works, Dr. Avant published The Market for Force, The Consequences of Privatizing Security, which was the first scholarly work on private military and security companies. In 2013, she was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland for her research in international security and her contribution towards regulating private military and security companies. Hello, Debbie. Hi, Chris. Dr. Sorka McLeod. Dr. McLeod is a member of the United Nations Working Group on the Use of Mercenaries, and she participated in the drafting of the Montreux document on private military and security companies and the International Code of Conduct for Private Security Providers. Her full-time job is Associate Professor and Marie Curie Individual Fellow in the Center for Private Governance in the Faculty of Law, University of Copenhagen. She specializes in business, human rights, and security, in particular, the human rights and impacts and regulation of private military and security companies. Dr. McLeod has observer status at the International Code of Conduct Association and advises governments, industry, and civil society organizations on business, human rights, and security issues. Hello, Dr. McLeod. Hello, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. Mr. Gary Matzek is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Program Support where he was responsible for Defense Department policy and regulation of contractor support to combatant commanders during combat operations, post-conflict operations, and other contingency operations, including humanitarian and disaster relief. He was also my boss in my work developing policy and regulation of private security companies. Currently, Gary is a member of the board of directors for Securitas, which is the largest private security company in the world. Hello, Gary. Good morning, Chris. So to begin, Carl Jung said that properly identifying the problem is more than halfway to solving the problem. In keeping with that idea, I want to start asking your opinion about what the real problem is. What risks do Wagner-type operations and other non-governmental combat provider organizations present to regional stability, human rights, and the rule of law? I'd like to begin with Dr. Avon. Thanks, Chris. Um, so. It's interesting. I think um, a lot of people focus very directly on the, um, the behavior of these um, quasi-mercenary groups um, in, in particular circumstances. And, um, you know, there, uh, there's actually remarkably little research on exactly what kind of risk they pose to human rights. Um, uh, but that is something that, um, you know, I think uh, we will see more research on in the future, um, despite the fact that it's difficult um, uh, to do that kind of work. But I think um, a, a more important way to think about this is not just to focus on the individual risks of these groups, but to focus on the way in which they enable poor behavior um, that violates rule of law, that violate, violates human rights, that violates a variety of international norms on the part of their employers. Um, and so the fact that these companies are operating is in part a function of the fact that somebody wants to hire them. And I think more focus on those clients and what the clients um, 
uh, are up to is, is an important risk that we ought to be paying attention to. Thank you. Barry? At the risk of overgeneralizing, I, I would first uh, question the idea that they're non-governmental organizations. I'm not convinced of that. I think many of them, in fact, are governmental or quasi-governmental, uh, perhaps even fronts for their nation states. Uh, my primary concern is that they provide a means that well, whoever sponsors them, uh, if they are a nation state, uh, use this to circumvent the generally accepted standards of the way governments and government employees, uh, government uh, military, quasi-military functions are supposed to perform. And this is a way to, uh, to, to separate yourself in, into a gray space, which uh, can interfere with everything. So I think the risk by its very nature, because they seem to be outside of any norms of uh, oversight, uh, especially the international, are a uh, threat to human rights, stability, and the basic rule of law. Sarka, your thoughts? Thanks, Chris. Um, I think, and, and I'm, I'm talking here from the, the, the working group's perspective. So the working group on the use of mercenaries, um, we are a, a group of five independent human rights experts. So we have a human rights mandate, and that's very much our, our approach. And I would say there are three, three things in particular that highlight the problems of these types of actors. The first one um, is, I suppose, following on from, from what Gary was saying, is in, is in relation to this increasing emergence of proxy wars, where we see these actors being used um, by third party countries to participate in armed conflicts where they are not a, an official party to the uh, to the conflict. So we've seen that, for example, with uh, Turkey and, and Russia in, in Libya. We've seen it with Turkey in uh, relation to Nagorno-Karabakh and the conflict there. We've seen it again with Russia in Central African uh, Republic. And the problem is that when they are inserted into these types of conflicts, they exacerbate the conflict and it means that they are not actually helping to uh, to prevent the, the conflict. They're actually creating a situation where, where the, the, the conflict continues longer than perhaps it would have. The second issue is in, directly in relation uh, to, to human rights. The reality is that these actors are involved in extremely serious human rights violations and um, potentially even war crimes. So the working group um, on mercenaries has, uh, has evidence that they've been involved in mass executions and torture, uh, looting, indiscriminate targeting of civilians. Um, we've seen that in, in CAR uh, most recently, for, for, for example. And then the, the third issue is that uh, when you do have these types of, of human rights violations and you do have uh, war crimes being committed, there's a real problem uh, with holding them uh, to account. The whole use of these types of actors is extremely opaque. We don't have um, clear uh, chains of command. We don't have uh, clear oversight uh, mechanisms. And fundamentally, it's, it's almost impossible to hold them to account for the, the human rights violations that, they, that they've engaged in. So I would say those those are the three main issues from from a human rights perspective. Okay, well, uh, to summarize and to being in with uh, Sorka's first, they they all fit in with each other, but the idea here is that although they're they are being attributed uh, quite credibly in many cases with gross violations of human rights and international law, uh, sometimes I mean arguably war crimes. There's been little actual research because it's been so difficult to do that. And we need to focus on that. The use of these companies is not only exacerbating uh, conflict where they exist, but they're enabling governments to do so with a list of veneer of legal lack of accountability and responsibility by the governments, which of course can only make things worse. Is that pretty much agreement of a good summary of what we've just covered? I'd say so. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think you know. I think we we actually all agreed to an, a, 
in strong extent. Next, I want to remind everyone, panelists and listeners, of the really amazing work of the Montreux document. Although written by and for governments, it included direct participation by and counsel from academia, NGOs, and the PMSCs themselves. The document begins with a review of existing international legal obligations as they apply to governments and to PMSCs, and then proposes good practices for states to use in exercising their responsibilities under international law. 18 governments participated in the negotiation, including China and Russia. It was initially endorsed by 17 of those governments. Russia dropped out at the last minute and instead condemned the entire initiative, and they continue to condemn it in the OSCE today. Today, though, 58 governments, NATO, the OSCE, and the European Union have endorsed the document and participate in the ongoing Montreux Document Forum. This forum allows states to discuss implementation and challenges of the obligations and good practices endorsed at Montreux. My next question to the group then is whether the Swiss initiative that led to both the Montreux document and the International Code of Conduct can be a model for addressing the proliferation of quasi-mercenary organizations. I'm going to begin with Dr. McLeod because she directly participated in both those initiatives. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, Chris. Um, so again, from the from the working group's perspective, I think it's important to to remember that we we actually do have. Um, uh, an international treaty that that directly addresses uh, mercenary activities and and in fact criminalizes mercenary activities and that's the, the the UN mercenary convention the difficulty or the problem with that convention is that we you know 30 years on since it since it was uh, open for ratification we only have 37 state parties to that convention there's not been the political will on the part of states to uh, to, to ratify it and to become uh, parties to it. And I think that's, 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 that's very problematic. So then, of course, we're turning to soft, you know, soft regulation um, in the form of, of something like the Montreux document. And of course, the Montreux document is something that you know, particular states have put a lot of time and effort and energy into. And they see that, uh, many states see that as being, you know, the only thing that's necessary. They don't see anything further being needed. So we've, we've got, we've got a, um, the open-ended intergovernmental working group at the UN looking to, to create some sort of potentially binding mechanism. And many states are, are reluctant to go down that route. Um, I think... The, the working group would uh, the working group on the use of mercenaries would say we want to encourage more states to become a party to the to the UN convention on on mercenaries um, and we would want to to see some sort of binding mechanism that would apply um, to PMSCs more more broadly but the difficulty is 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 getting any sort of agreement on that not least the the definition you know as as you said i've i've been involved in 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 the montreux document from the very near the beginning and it still feels like groundhog day you know the 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 open ended intergovernmental working group is still talking about definitions what is a pmsc and the working group on the use of mercenaries keeps saying it's it's not about what we call them it's about what they do and how they are involved in human rights violations that's what what actually uh, what actually matters. So the the reality is, whilst there's you know there's a there's a reasonable uptake amongst states in terms of participating in the Montreux document, the reality is the document isn't capable of stopping the activities of these types of private actors who are either they either meet the criteria for mercenary or they're they're very close to meeting the the criteria for mercenary, and. All that the, the Montreux document does is that it restates existing international legal obligations. It doesn't create any new legal obligations. And I think we need to, we actually do need to see legal obligations that criminalize um, the kind of behavior that we're seeing and, and holds these actors and their personnel to account for human rights violations and, and war crimes. But isn't that the, the problem is that so many states resist uh, new regulation, in particular with the Convention Against Mercenary Activities. Even the UN Working Group on Mercenaries has pointed out that one of its deficiencies is the definition of mercenary, uh, which uh, organizations like Wagner 
you know, don't really fit into that definition. So the convention actually wouldn't stop them. And I Abs would point absolutely. At, yeah. And I would point out that one reason why the United States is not a participant in that convention, nor uh, additional protocol one to the Geneva conventions is because of what we believe to be the very poor definition of mercenary in those documents. Yeah, I mean, the definition is extremely problematic because it is cumulative. And so you have to, to meet all of the criteria within the, the definition to be categorized as a, as a mercenary. And, and some of those are subjective. So, you know, it, it, it says a mercenary is someone who has the intent to be involved in the, the conflict and is then is being paid substantially more than the, the regular members of, of the armed forces. And, and those are very subjective things to establish and very difficult to establish. And we're certainly seeing that the motivation for, for people to participate in, in conflicts is very different. So if you look, some of the um, individuals um, who were, who've been recruited uh, by uh, Turkey to, to fight in Libya, the, they weren't necessarily fight, uh, fighting for um, very you know, for very large amounts of money, but they were being paid more than they would be paid, say, for example, back in Syria, or they were being offered um, uh, protection or some sort of citizenship or or residency rights for their uh, for their families if something were to happen to them. So we've got um, very vulnerable individuals who are being taken advantage of because of uh, because they're coming from a from a, an already conflict affected area, and they are they're economically vulnerable, and some of them didn't even know that they were going to be um, you know fighting um, in a, in an armed conflict. So you're absolutely right. The, the definition really causes us um, some problems. But we've also got to bear in mind that it's states that draft international uh, treaties. You know, states chose to 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 create this uh, this language. And of course, you know, we are seeing, you know, states want to be able to, to in some cases, hire private, uh, private actors. You know, this is this is the the, the difficulty uh, that we've that we that we face. Gary, you're next. Yeah, uh, I I agree with Deborah that ideally the mercenary convention, properly written and properly endorsed, would be the uh, the vehicle to cover all this. Having said that. We all know that that's uh, virtually unlikely. It's not going to happen in the near term. So what are you left with? Uh, so anything is better than nothing in my mind. The idea of uh, the Montrose document, which we have made progress using, let's be honest about it, to uh, to cover this area, if nothing else, is a good filler and, and stopgap measure. Where I think we have failed uh, with the present Montrose document and perhaps this uh this new investment of time and effort is that uh, during my tenure with it, if you remember, Chris, we didn't have international organizations signed up for it. We had just individual countries. My, my argument would be it's time to try to get NATO, the OSCE and the EUU and any other overhead organization uh, to implement regulations within their own community. That, that might be somewhat easier than trying to bite the entire bullet off or bite the entire thing off at once. Uh, but to, to the life of me, I don't even believe the North Atlantic Council, for example, NATO has instituted a standardization agreement with regards to PMSCs or the uh, the use of them, even though virtually all their their company or all their countries have used them in uh, an Article 5 effort. So that's a stopgap measure. I leave it to the experts to come up with the proper definition. But, you know, as a working guy, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a damn duck. And if you've got an organization out there uh, that's organized, that's armed, and is clearly violating human rights and rules of law, that's the basket you put them in. Uh, I don't care whether you put them in the basket of military I don't care if you put it in a basket of PMSCs, but this is clearly a, a third basket. Put them in that basket and, and then have established rules, international rules, which is what we're discussing, to cover them. I'm not trying to fit them 
under the PMSC chapeau. I'm saying, fine, create a third bucket, uh, let the Montreux document expand and uh, let that cover this particular side of the house. I do also agree with Deborah, you're gonna have a hell of a lot of pushback because of that. Because again, I'm convinced that many times these are actors acting on behalf of uh, nation states in, in, and as she described it, a way to have deniability for what you're doing. Uh, so this is a tremendous challenge, but we, we've got to get something in place to, uh, to try to put some barriers and uh, protections around it. I mean, we're back to the, to the basic, I, I can still remember, you know, humanitarian efforts 101, where whenever there was a crisis in the world, we would send doctors from around the world to, to fill the hole. And that was, that was admirable and it was great. But as you recall, many of the countries were sending their non-certified doctors, non-licensed doctors, and it became, became a major challenge. So the, the sender nation and the receiving nation in this respect have responsibilities to put these guys under some sort of parameters and control where uh, we, can, uh, we can manage them and hold them accountable. I, I think my frustration, and I think I'm hearing it from the other panelists, is that there's no clear way today to really hold them accountable other than in the form of public opinion. And that's got precious little force as of right now. Back to so, you. So the United States, of course, we uh, we require, and the, and the United Kingdom does too, require certification to the PSC standards that were derived from the Montreux document in our contracting. And we have held uh, companies accountable uh, for violations of those standards. But yeah. with regards to NATO, the OSCE and the EU, who are all participants in the Montreux document, yeah, it's nice that they signed up to it, uh, but now it's time to walk the walk. I, I, that's, that's exactly right. It's interesting that, you know, here in the U.S., we're trying to manage this entire uh, oversight effort, for lack of a better term. I know you don't like that but we're trying to manage the oversight effort using contracting vehicles uh, when, you know, this is, you know, there's other ways of doing it than using your contracting officer to try to manage the, the armed, uh, armed personnel in a particular area. I'm not sure that's the, the best way of doing it. It's the only way we've, we've been successful thus far. But for example, if NATO had an overriding regulation, overriding standard, uh, they're, their plans would have to include consideration of this. Uh, you know, NATO subscribes to human rights. It has not specifically subscribed to human rights for their contractor employees, particularly those that are armed. It's time that they get off and, and do it. And so you're not going to attack, handle the Wagner group doing that directly, but indirectly uh, as international norms and standards become accepted, we, we may have something here. I'm not I'm a, I'm a half full guy, glass half full with regards to what we've done with PMSCs, because I remember how difficult it was uh, at the beginning of our contingency operations, which is you and I were particularly involved in, in watching our Deputy Secretary of State and Deputy Secretary of Defense haul in uh, representatives for every PMSC company we had and read in the Riot Act that if you don't get your act together, we're going to uh, make sure legislation's passed that you will not have any business here. And I think we've actually done in retrospect in the 20 years that we've been at this, a pretty remarkable job in at least getting the, the base established. Because that base is established, quite frankly, that's why I think the Wagner type groups have gone, gone around it, uh, at least overtly now, because that standard has been established. So you can't hire them as a PMSC or PSC so they become something else. And it's now time to say that's close enough. Let's get them under the chapeau as well somehow. So anyhow, again, bottom line is I think uh, expanding the mantra document to, to do it is the best we can hope for right now. But I think our implementing should be done not just by nation to nation, but we should have the international organizations have to get off their butts and, uh, and implement what they've already endorsed. Thanks. And Sorco reminded me uh, on text here that uh, the UK doesn't actually require compliance with the standard that just strongly encourages it. Encourage, yeah. Okay. So Dr. Avon, yours. Yeah, so um, so I agree with Sorco that um, 
that, you know, sort of the gold standard treaty, um, well-written and endorsed by many governments would be great, but it's hard to bind without political will. And so I, I, you know, I agree with Gary, the Montreux document was really an effort to begin to sort of build a sort of normative consensus around what these um, companies should and shouldn't do and what the clients who hire them um, should be able to do with them or not. And I, and I do think it made progress. And I think that we now have the Montreux document. We now have the Montreux document forum. And those would be good places to, you know, attempt to expand the reach. Um, and I think with respect to the Montreux document, um, you know, a lot of the reach is just expanding the number of people who are signed on to it. One thing I might point out is that when the Montreux document um, or the Swiss initiative began, not everybody agreed on what the problem was, mm -hmm. but they did agree that there was a problem. Um, and I think getting some of those that are not participant in this process to agree that there is a problem with what they're doing could be an important element in sort of expanding the um, buy-in to, to the Montreux document. There's just one other point, which is um, that the International Code of Conduct and the standards process only apply to a very small segment of the activity that the Montreux document describes. And I think that both Chris and Gary will agree and Sorka that there was an expectation that this code of conduct would just be the first one and that there would be standards and codes that would apply to the variety of quote unquote legitimate services that these companies might provide. Um, I think expanding the scope of the code of conduct and the standards is very important for isolating activity that we see to be illegitimate. And so I do think that that lot more work could be done uh, by the U.S. government, by other governments that are already party to the Montreux Forum um, and the Montreux document to build out the standards surrounding the variety of services that companies can legitimately um, provide as a way of sharpening the distinction between those legitimate services and the illegitimate services that we see being provided by, um, by these, these other um, uh, quasi-mercenary organizations. Okay, so in summary, we, I think we all agree that ideally a good binding international convention covering uh, that expands from existing agreements about private security companies to also include these combat provider firms, which the Montreux document deliberately did not consider is going to be very, very difficult. So, but what we need to do in the meantime, while we're working towards that gold standard of an international convention is build up what the work that we've already done with the Montreux document and with the international code of conduct to bring in both the legitimate combat provider firms we may have, and to also then point out where the legitimate from the illegitimate operation. So Gary brought up about the OSCE not walking in the walk, uh, and I've actually been in OSCE meetings where I see how it's how very difficult it is because unlike NATO, Russia is a member of the OSCE, and so it, whatever we, they would do, it would be very difficult to get through uh, the Russian veto for OSCE operations, as they're always very happy to point out that OSCE and the Forum for Security Cooperation can only do things through consensus, and as long as they don't agree, nothing's going to happen. But nonetheless, the OSCE did pass a parliamentary resolution in June of 2019 that's read in part, calls upon the participating states to provide voluntary information on PMSCs within the in annual information exchange on uh, their code of conduct on political military aspects of security. In other words, when you report, when a state reports on its, uh, its military forces, they should also include private military and security companies. This is something that the United States is a latecomer to it, but the Swiss, the Germans, and several other countries have been trying to get through the Forum for Security Cooperation. So do you believe that this resolution might help bring to light the activity of quasi-mercenary organizations and perhaps encourage transparency and maybe even good behavior on the part of countries that use PMSCs? Gary, I'm going to start with you. Well, anything is better than nothing. So the initial answer is yes. 
but to uh to tie back to what was said before the uh the challenge will be uh what are they actually reporting i like the idea of sasha when she said we've got to you know open the envelope and include all the bona fide areas that we use contractors for in contingencies if you will that that's a great start because ideally if you're not in that basket you're in this other basket which is what we're concerned about if the reporting was proper that said list those companies or list the information i should say that fall under the the pmsc rubric as it stands now and then also report other quasi military or quasi pmsc however you have to word it to get it through uh, that would provide some insight. I'm not sure it's going to do anything to control it. What it would do is probably raise the sensibilities of the public if it comes out, because I think one of the things the public is not aware of, and politicians in general, is the size of the contractor community that supports the various institutions in these in these efforts. With that becoming a realization, you may get some sort of renewed interest in saying, well, this is a huge number of folks and, uh, and tasks that re represents a huge amount of money. Uh, how do we control it? So perhaps it's the economic side of the house, the budget side of the house that you actually engender interest. So, I mean, reporting it is fine. It's not bad, but I think it's going to have limited application in the near term. Sarka. So the, the, the working group, Lisa um, Mercenaries, we don't have um, a specific position or public position on uh, the work of the OSCE on this. So I can't comment specifically on that. But uh, how about having in your said professorial hat? <laughs> well, this is the thing. There's not really, there's not, not sort of uh, much, uh, much difference, I suppose, these days. Um, what I can say is that that certainly the working group would welcome any anything that's going to encourage uh, transparency and shed some light on the use of PMSCs. Uh, that's you know that's something that should always be welcomed. But having said that, I'm not sure that an initiative such as, as the one that's being proposed, would actually address the problem that we're talking about. Because we're, we're talking about the, the, the sort of use of, of PMSCs, um, and, you know, as, as Debbie was saying, the legitimate use of, of PMSCs, and that's the language that you know, the EU uses, it's the language that the United States uses. And those are um, recognised corporate actors who are providing um, uh, certain contractual services uh, to uh, the armed forces of states in situations of, of armed conflict. And that's quite a clear situation. But what we've been talking about is something different. So we've, we've been talking about um, the use of uh, actors that are uh, not necessarily uh, recognised by law, even. So if you if you look, for example, if we if you know, we, we keep we've talked about Wagner. If you if you look at Wagner, you know, Wagner doesn't actually exist. It doesn't exist as a as a legal entity. It doesn't have a corporate a corporate structure. And when the working group on the use of mercenaries, when we have um, sent so called communications or letters of allegation to the Russian government alleging human rights violations by uh, Russian contractors, allegedly Wagner, Russia's response is always is always the same. And Russia will say that under Russian law, um, it's simply not possible to uh, register or, or be listed as a private military and security company. Uh, Russian law does not uh, simply does not uh, provide for that. And furthermore, mercenarism is um, criminalized under uh, Russia's criminal code. So we've got different types of actors here. So while an initiative like the OECE initiative is definitely to, to be welcomed, I don't think it's actually going far enough in being able to uh, address the, the types of actors that we've been highlighting today. 
And Dr. Avant, your thoughts. Um, yeah, I, I really agree with um, both Gary and Sorka. Something is better than nothing. Um, I think anything that provides us with additional reporting information on these companies and their behavior um, and, and their clients um, is actually very useful. And so I'm supportive of the, the resolution. But I think that because um, of the complexities that Sorka um, talked about with respect to Russian law, um, the likelihood that you're going to get Russia to cooperate on, on reporting uh, the behavior of the Wagner Group or, or others is, um, is slim. And I think what is useful is the OSCE's continued attention to this issue. And what I would encourage them to do is to focus on any way in which groups like Wagner or others um, pose difficulties um, for Putin's government, because I think that building on those difficulties is the way in which um, you might be able to draw some parts of the Russian government in. Um, but again, I'm not holding out great hopes for that. These are similar to the, the problems are similar to those that I've discussed with the authors of the Food for Thought paper that formed the, uh, the parliamentary resolution. And the idea is, is that the Russians, you know, they're not going to report honestly. We know that. Okay, they're not going to talk about Wagner because as far as they're concerned, Wagner doesn't actually exist as a legal entity. As a matter of fact, it doesn't, it may not exist as a, as a physical entity at all. Rather, it's a concept. But we figure that if we get enough uh, other OSCE states to report on their PMSCs, then we can use that as an opportunity to once again point out that Russia is not being forthcoming with what they are, are doing. So anyway, one final question before opening it up to your ideas about what can be done. The U.S. Government Accountability Office recently released a report on Defense Department oversight of private security companies. A summary of that report might be to note that the word oversight is a contronym, a word that can have two opposite meanings, oversight and oversight. Anyway, uh, the GAO said that the major difficulty is that there is no single agreed definition of PSC. Although I don't entirely agree with that, I think that DOD instructions and federal acquisition regulations do a pretty good job of defining what it is we wanted to regulate, but I understand their point in other contexts. On the other hand, the UN Working Group on Mercenaries has said that the definition of mercenary under international law is too restrictive. Is it possible to properly define what it is we're trying to control without falling into either difficulty, that is being too broad, or too narrow? I'll start with Mr. Motzik because he was uh, instrumental in that definition that exists under U.S. statute. The answer is no, uh, because despite our best attempts, as you were, even within the U.S., we don't have a really clear understanding or agreement as to, as to what a PSC is. And uh, part of it is what what is written today is being too restrictive. And the, the challenge that we have is we're, uh, for your second part of your question, is whatever the definition is for PS, PMSC and the mercenary, there's going to be an overlap. Uh, I don't know how to avoid that unless they are so restrictively written that uh, it's, an, it's literally impossible to... Uh, to implement it anyway, because it'll be too narrow. You know, I, I find the, uh, the definition of mercenary personally, because of the, the checklist you've got to go down is troubling. I mean, again, we talked about being paid substantially more than the armed forces of the, uh, of the area that you're in. That's an interesting concept to me. But uh, again, it goes back to what the base rate of the mercenary him or herself is. And uh, they could be paid less than the average military. If we hired mercenaries in the United States, I am sure we could get lots of third world people who'd be willing to work at a rate of two thirds the price that we pay a military member, but they'd still be mercenaries in my mind. So, I mean, the devils are in, always in the details in these things. And again, I, it, it's tough to be overly, overly specific because the, there's always ways to get around it. But quite frankly, you know, we're concentrating people that are armed, that have the ability 
to use deadly force. And that's the context we're looking in. So again, I don't agree with what the GAO said either. I think we, we had inside the Department of Defense a good enough definition. I don't think we as a country did. Uh, I think the challenge that we had is that we could never get the rest of the administrations to agree to it. In my mind, it would take OMB to publish a, uh, a policy that said, these are your baseline rules, state, DOD, commerce, other government agencies, US aid, uh, whoever else is out there hiring folks. And these are the standards and this is the definitions you need to adhere to. And unfortunately, we are still you know, decentralized with our little fiefdoms in the, in the government. And until we get those consolidated, I'm not sure we're going to be able to do as much on the international level. But again, yeah, definitions are going to kill you every time. But uh, I, even today, I think our, our definitions are too narrow. Sorka, you mentioned earlier that it's not so much of defining what they are as what they do. With regards to quasi-mercenary organizations uh, like, like Wagner and including more uh, open and transparent ones like the Dyke Advisory Group, uh, is it possible to define what we're trying to control by focusing on what they do rather than what they are? I, w- I would say yes, as as, I, as as you say, I already have. And I think, I think you know, what, what Gary's talking about when we're talking about the use of force, that's absolutely at the heart of any discussion around these actors. Talking, trying to define them by name, by labels, is deeply, deeply unhelpful. And I think this is, this is one of the reasons why, um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Open-Ended Intergovernmental Working Group on, a, on an instrument to regulate PMSEs is going, frankly, round in circles because we can't get beyond um, the, the the definition. And I and I think these groups or these actors they don't exist in a in a silo. You know, there's so much of an overlap. Um, so you might have one organisation where, in some contracts, no weapons. Are, are being carried by the, the personnel, but they're in another contract, in another country, in a conflict situation, they might be carrying um, weapons. And so I think it's helpful to think about actors in this area on a spectrum with a lot of overlap between them. So if you think, you know, on the one hand, you've got, or at one end, you've got um, you know, peacetime security guards who are you know, doing very basic um, security provision, so guarding, you know, uh, shopping malls and nightclubs and public transport. Then you've got, you know, still in peacetime, you've got them, maybe they're armed, maybe they are um, armed guards for money transfers. Then you've got them sort of moving into conflict um, affected areas. Um, And you've got guards who are perhaps um, guarding embassies or the assets of uh, an oil company or, or something like that. Then you've got them moving into situations where they're providing much more recognizable military services. So they're providing training for security services or the armed forces of a country. And then you again, you then you, you, you sort of got to the extreme where they are operating in um, conflict affected areas, but they are participating um, uh, in the hostility. So they're, they're, they're actually on the, on the front line and they are, you know, they are uh, fighting in the conflict. And, you know, the, the, these, these different actors don't sit in isolation. As I said, they, they, there, there is a lot of overlap. And I think it's much more useful to think about them. And, and you know, again, you know, this is very much from the human rights perspective, is to, to think about, well, can they, when they are using force, can they violate uh, human rights? And the answer, of course, is, is yes. Um, th- th- that potential is there. And in some instances, they do, in fact, violate human rights. And they do, in fact, violate human rights in a, in a very serious and very violent way. And I think that's what we, you know, we need to we need to to focus on it's not about what we call them that's that's a red herring that's not helpful in terms of trying to trying to regulate these actors we want to very much think about what they're doing it where they're doing it yes um because we know that situations of armed conflict um or post-conflict environments or conflict affected areas the, the reality is that um that human rights are very vulnerable in in those sorts of situations but 
the other side of the coin is that there are lots and lots of situations where PMSCs are being used to guard assets that are not conflict-affected areas, but we're still seeing very, very violent human rights uh, violations. And so, you know, there aren't clear-cut ways in which we can we can separate out these these actors. You know, they they, they operate in multiple areas in multiple ways, sometimes carrying arms, sometimes not, sometimes in conflict, sometimes not. And so I think that's why it's 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 much more useful to think about um, the the services that they're offering and the potential for adverse human rights impacts. Okay, thank you. Debbie. Yeah, um, I just agree wholeheartedly um, with, with Sorka and have for many, many years that we need to focus on what they do, not who they are. <clears throat> I do think um, we also need to focus on who they do it for, that the, um, the kinds of behavior that would be appropriate for um, a, a company working for a government um, who has certain kinds of um, legal capacity to hold them to accountable account would be different from what we might um, uh, want from a company that's working for, you know, an oil or mining company. Um, and I do think that there's there's quite a bit more work we could do on that front. And I might also suggest that that is, is likely to become much more important work as we look ahead. Um, there was a foreign affairs article this week talking about the end of the war on terror. Um, who knows if that's actually accurate, but certainly the drawdown of U.S. forces um, in the Middle East been going on for a while, um, has increased the degree to which um, these companies will, to the extent that they're legitimate, are working um, for the private sector as well. So I think that there's still room um, uh, to work on that. Um, and so I think we need we need a whole of government approach, as Gary suggested, um, in the sense that it's not just companies working for DOD, but companies working for the whole U.S. government. But in a sense, we also need a whole of clients approach where we're sort of thinking about the way that they work for different clients. And then I'll come back to my earlier point is that we have um, a strong definition and a standard and a code of conduct around private security companies. We don't have that on all the other kinds of services. And so you need to sort of build out those kinds of standards. And I think a much more kind of nuanced approach where you're building out standards for different behavior um, and standards that are attentive to human rights concerns, to rule of law concerns, and to accountability concerns, are really the way we need to approach um, all these kinds of services. I, th I think that's a much more appropriate um, way forward than trying to decide on, you know, sort of a single definition. Listening to the responses that you've given to the thought pieces that I put out here has reminded me of the classic Max Weber definition of a, of a modern state as being an entity that uh, successfully uh, exercises the control of violence in the territory that it claims jurisdiction over. And it's interesting because of the lack of accountability of these Wagner type operations is that we have countries like the Central African Republic that is actually abandoning that notion by saying that they're not responsible for the violence that is occurring within their territory that they claim to control. To wrap up here, because we've been going on for a while, I'm going to ask each of you one idea, one idea consistent with existing international law about what can be done to control the risks that you've identified earlier about these, not only Russian, but Turkish and other country quasi-mercenary organizations. Start with Sorka. Can you come back to me? Yes, I will be happy to, if Dr. Avon is willing to step up. Sure, I've, I've actually already, um, I, I've already said my piece and I'll just repeat it. I think um, building out standards of behavior for the variety of services that would be deemed legitimate by the, the Montreux document is, is really the, the most promising way to go. Um, and then trying to uh, expand the scope of uh, parties to the Montreux document um, parties to agreements for other kinds of clients like the voluntary principles on security and human rights. So I think we have a base to start with. And I think trying to expand that base is, is probably the best way forward 
if for no other reason than it will isolate um, and make very clear the illegal and illegitimate um, behavior of groups like Wagner. Gary, one idea. Uh, I love Debra's. That's the bad news. I'm looking at the short-term solution right now. And I would argue that we, we need to start holding both the sending and receiving states that receive these organizations or use these organizations to be held to account. Uh, we just discussed that uh, by very definition of Russian law, you can't be a mercenary. Uh, and I think there's no doubt, and I think collectively we know that that's not true. Uh, so the sending state has an obligation and the receiving state has an obligation to control in so far as they're capable of, uh, of what's going on. Uh, my regret is that on both sides of the house, people are turning a blind eye because they're looking for a short-term fix or short-term solution. The end result is human rights and uh, rule of law falls by the wayside for a uh, desires of either that sending or receiving state or both. So uh, the experience we had developing the uh, the standards of using PSCs in, in conflict, uh, that was the, that was kind of the, the cornerstone of what we found out as being important to be successful. The sending state has to assume their obligations and understand that they, they have obligations have to be held accountable. Uh, again, from the U.S. perspective, perhaps we knew what you're we supposed to do. We didn't have the vehicles to completely do it as we hope to. But the receiving state is just as much at fault if they just let this tacitly go on. And so that's that's where I would concentrate right now to hold them uh, accountable to accept the already accepted international standards and see if we can't work something in the short term that way. Thanks. All right, Sorka, back to you. <laughs> Thank you. I actually um, very much agree with what, what both Debbie and Gary have, have said. I'd perhaps go even further than what Gary has said in terms of, you know, we have to, yes, we have to remember that the, 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 the primary responsibility for protecting human rights and preventing human rights violations and remedying uh, human rights violations rests with, with states. But in the absence of sending and receiving states uh, doing anything to address the, the issues we've been talking about today, then the international community has to step up because, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're not just talking about, you know, dry standards and dry regulation. We're talking about, um, you know, individual human beings and communities that are being um, impacted in, in the most horrible, horrible ways. And, and we have to, you know, we have to protect them. And we have to ensure that they that they are not being harmed by these kinds of actors. Wow, that's a great wrap up, a great way to conclude this, refocusing us on the real problem that we're facing with quasi-mercenary organizations. Well, I really enjoyed that discussion with some of the genuine experts who I've had the honor and pleasure to work with over the years. It seems that the big concern is that unlike regular military forces, it's very difficult to hold quasi-mercenary forces or the states that employ them accountable for violations under the law of war or international human rights law. Corrective actions are possible, but it will take diplomatic courage among concerned states to hold sending and receiving states accountable. Also, it will take the United States and other Western governments to set the example, encourage other states to work with us, to define the problem and develop guidance and standards to guide our own use of private military companies in the same way as we have done for private security companies. I hope that you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did and that you will come back and join me, Chris Mayer, for the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.